Hello? Okay, so this might be a really weird thought. What if you could erase from your mind that you'd ever seen a human body and then you saw one? Imagine how strange it would look. It'd be this really weird, gangly, awkward organism and you'd think, why are all these parts where they are? You're forgiven. Bye now. T'as pas aimé contour? La silhouette? Do you like clothes, Howard? What do you mean? Oh, you know, like famous quotes. There's one that goes, I am inevitable. And so are we. Welcome to the first episode. My name is George. I'm from Austria. I'm Crip from the UK. And I'm Bia from Portugal. And we are three euros per movie. Every episode, we will pick three movies that relate to each other in some fashion, be it directors, writers, an influence, or something else, and we will discuss and review each film selected. Sometimes it will be a new movie and two that are older, or it may be three completely random which are selected by each of us with a common theme. Spoilers are to be expected after a spoiler-free segment, and we will even sprinkle in some trivia surrounding the production and reception. At the end of every episode, we will tell you the three movies we will discuss next time if you wish to watch and prepare. So, in this first episode, we will go in a different route from the standard format. We will be going over a variety of questions that will serve as an introduction and reveal a little bit more about our tastes. And, of course, for you, the listener, to judge how much cinephile blood runs within us. Our first question we prepared for the day is the very first film memory everyone here can recall. For me personally, that would be Finding Nemo, the Pixar movie, when I watched it for the very first time as a kid in an open-air cinema. Damn. You were young. <laughs> I was really young. I gotta have been like five or six. What, what year was Finding Nemo? 2001? I no, think 2002 or four, maybe, right? You guys are old, man. I'm sorry for my age, okay? <laughs> so Finding Nemo was released in 2003. Probably didn't release here till 2004 when, when it released here in the open air cinema. The open air cinema is, is pretty special, actually. It's surrounded with these medieval walls, basically the, the original walls from when it was a, a literal castle. And yeah. you have this giant uh, field in the middle of it and just these corners with a, a tower at the end of it and one giant screen on it. And people just gather each summer to watch a bunch of movies. It has like a selection of the, the important movies, if you want to call them that, of the last year. So it's always a little bit late. So I think I watched Finding Nemo like 2004. Would so make was sense. It was it your first experience in the cinema or just like your first movie memory um, in general? It might have been my first experience in the cinema. It's definitely the oldest I can recall. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As a kid, I, I watched a few things like on television, as kids do. But that's like the very distinct memory, just running around, especially in like the, <laughs> the break. <laughs> there's a middle break in, in the open air cinema and in that break running around with a few friends and then all gathering and sitting down to watch this movie together felt like such a magical thing probably also because like you're still really young and at that age you know staying up late is something super special and obviously open air cinemas can't run during the day 
that was all a very much a magical moment for me. Is it still open? Like, could I could I go yeah. there? Today? Yeah, yeah. Each this summer. is what I'm saying. Is this it, so? This was a castle. Yes, like it used to be a castle. Uh, those are like the castle walls, basically. Uh, they used to be the outer walls that um, barricaded the city. City is is too much. Uh, it's like a, a small, small town. My my local cinema used to be a bowling alley. So <laughs> I think I don't I don't think we're we're pretty equal in that. I'm not I'm not happy about that to be honest. I want a castle cinema. In my I want a castle cinema. <laughs> I want a castle cinema. This sounds so sick. Yeah, I'm very aware that growing up like this was very fortunate for like getting into movies. Yeah. Do you remember anything specifically about Finding Nemo? Like because obviously the movie is Funny Nemo, but do you remember the experience of seeing it or the movie more? I think the experience, it's a bit hard to judge now because like in the recent years, I have rewatched it. So I, I could recall pretty much most of the plot, but I don't know how much of that would be fair to assign to like the initial viewing. Mm-hmm. I definitely, yeah. when rewatching it, I think last year or two years ago, I remember that all of the time I was like, oh yeah, and that happened, and that happened. So I, I definitely had some memories in there. I remembered the 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 tur- tortoise, turtle? What's mm-hmm. the water one? Yeah, yeah. The yeah, the turtles. Yeah. The turtles, yeah. I distinctly remembered those. Yeah, were they like just spitting bro left and right? Yeah. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. yeah. I love that part of the movie. Oh, and I remember the the whole joke with the address in Sydney, how she, <laughs> Wallaby Street something Sydney. <laughs> P. Sherman, <laughs> Wallaby Street, Sydney. And there, I got it. <laughs> I do find it kind of funny that you two have both kids' films, you know, because obviously we, we all have each other's answers to these questions. And I distinctly do not. Yeah. Like, What's right, up so- about that? <laughs> Um, oh, I was going to ask Vera about hers, but okay, we can go for mine. So yeah, mine is with the film Boogeyman 3, which is such a specific B-movie. Like, nobody has seen this film. Nobody cares about this film. But when I was about, I don't know, I'd say about five or six, about when you start having memories that you keep forever, about whatever age that is. Mm Mm-hmm. I grew up with like a lot of siblings. I have about like 12 siblings. It was very hard for my mom to keep track of all of us. So I would stay up super late. And it, as long as I was quiet enough, you know, no one would really notice. And one time my brothers and sisters, well, some of them, were watching a horror film in like their room. And I snuck in there to go and watch it with them because I thought I was big and brave. And that film was Boogeyman 3. And they was watching this scene specifically, right? But it's um of this elevator scene. And there's this girl and she's covered in blood and she's being arrested or whatever. And the boogeyman like just kind of shows up upside down in the elevator and then snatches her. And it terrified me when I was a kid and I ran out of the room screaming. And I got in massive trouble for staying up so late. And then also for trying to watch a horror movie. That's when I decided I was never going to watch horror movies again. And I was an idiot because, as it turns out, that that's my favorite genre of film. So, complete 180 from when I was, like, six years old. 
But yeah, that was that's my first ever memory of film, and it was it's scarring. I still think about it. That's super interesting. I guess we can circle back to that when we talk about the favorite genres later. No, yeah, yeah. But yeah. I w- I had a very sheltered childhood. I grew up as the oldest child, so I also had like no opportunities like that. My parents are not into horror at all. And the result of that is that I actually never had that infamous experience of watching a horror film way too young as most movie fans apparently do. I wonder if I broke a code or something. It seems like everyone needs to have that one traumatizing film memory. <laughs> apparently, as a kid, yeah, apparently they do, yeah. <laughs> I missed out on that. <laughs> it really scarred me. Like I was I because you know we will circle back to like favorite genres and whatever, but even though horror is my favorite genre and horror movies don't like scare me or anything anymore. I don't watch that film. I have stayed so clear of that film. I've seen that one scene and that one scene only, and I never plan to watch the rest of that film. That's fascinating. I wonder if you... I think you you would probably lose all of that fear if, if you just watched it once and realized now that it's actually not a scary movie compared to a lot of... It's a shame we will never find yeah. out. <laughs> all right. You know what... But you guys were talking about trauma and fears and my first memory concerning like cinema and movie experiences was actually of my father just falling asleep uh, in the cinema, you know, and that was traumatizing <laughs> because oh, now it was just it just taught me that I it, it not it didn't taught me. It didn't teach me. It just molded me, you know into thinking that if I'm watching a movie with someone, you cannot be on your phone. You cannot, like, turn away. You cannot fall asleep. It's ruined if you do. So, yeah, that was very traumatizing in, in that way. So I watched Harry Potter. I, I, I can't remember exactly if it was Philosopher's Stone or a Chamber of Secrets. As you might imagine it, it was... um a very important experience for me as a child. Like the, the magical scenes, the, the world. I was in complete awe, you know, just seeing these characters, just throwing out spells. And it was very amazing to me. And I look to the left of me and my father is, <laughs> his eyes are closed. And I'm like, bro. <laughs> I'm having like a a defining experience here <laughs> and you're not watching it. I want to share my happiness. And that's what's most important to me with movies is sharing in a way an experience. Um, even have like thoughts about the movie after and talking about it. And I couldn't do that with my father because he just fell asleep and he took us home. And, you know, I can't, I don't remember the, the ride, of course, because I was, I was little, but um yeah just don't fall asleep guys there is there is something quite sweet about that though right like watching a film and your dad your dad falling asleep i don't know it seems kind of nice you think (laughs) you know because no because he right here's the thing this is how i interpret that situation though right he's fell asleep so he clearly doesn't want to be there but he's gone out his way to give you an experience you know he doesn't want to be there but he's drove you there so you could experience it and then he snoozed so he could just 
you know, forget about it or whatever. And then, mm-hmm. you know, he's welcome and he's drove you home. And he was, I, I reckon he was just trying to do something nice for you. And all you've done is say he's traumatized you. And I, <laughs> I think we need to give dad a little more credit. Yeah, he was probably tired, you know, from working. And we, I yeah. remember specifically that we went like in at a night, like 9 p.m. screening. And yeah, like my father is a very special person in the way that, uh, it was the first, or probably the only person in my family besides me that uh, has a passion for movies. And it was the first to just take me to the cinema and show me the movies that he enjoyed, like Philadelphia, I think. There's a couple more, like those action movies, you know, like Die Hard. He loved those, but I could see the the love and the interest that he, he showed for these movies. And it, in a way, inspired me to just also think about movies in that way so yeah you know i had um i had a similar experience with my dad he took me to go and watch harry potter and the half-blood prince and he didn't fall asleep he stayed awake the entire time and then he didn't (laughs) he didn't say anything the entire time and then we got into the car and i was i was pretty young at the time and i got into the car and he looked at me and he was like well that was shit Oh, no. <laughs> no, I was like, thanks, Dad. I really enjoyed it, but cheers. Because, uh, can I do spoilers for Half Blood Prince? Yeah. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert for like a 15 year old film. <laughs> it's the one where Dumbledore dies, right? It's the one yeah. where Snape kills Dumbledore. So I'm emotionally wrecked. I'm like exhausted from crying. And then I get in the car, and Dad's like, well, that movie was fucking shit. I was like, cheers, Dad, as I'm wiping tears from my eyes. Since we're already on the topic of childhood scars, when I was a child, I also got into the first Harry Potter movies. I definitely didn't see them in the cinema, but at home I had the DVD and I probably haven't played any DVD in my life that many times as I did with the Philosopher's Stone. I remember that I started reading the books because I couldn't wait for the movies to come out and I <laughs> I remember talking to a few other kids at my school and one straight up to my face spoiled me what would happen in Philosopher's Stone. And I thought it was so absurd that no. that could never happen that when I actually w- got to that point and it got closer, I was like, oh my God, he was really spoiling me. He wasn't making a joke. No, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's the number one sin, okay? Yeah. It's the number one sin when it comes to watching movies. As you guys know, I don't really watch trailers. I feel like they spoil the the fun for me. Yeah, I don't really either. We're all on a page there. To receive a spoiler, it's it's death, actually. Death. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I actually want to circle back to this whole spoiler thing because we're going to talk about a film later on. And I think, I think this kind of plays into a, a point I have about a film later on. I guess that brings us to the next question. A film genre you love and why? Crit, you want to start us off? The film genre I love and why is horror. Now, despite my first answer of the first question, Boogeyman 3, which uh, literally gives me PTSD. You wanted more. What? <laughs> <laughs> by, the, by the time I got to about 17, I, I literally recently just did a video about why I love horror. So I'm trying not to just completely redo that video here now. But um, when I was about 17, I 
found my love for the live action Scooby-Doo films, which I liked when I was a kid. And when I was 17, I was like, these films are like actually sick. And Matthew Lillard as Shaggy was my favorite character, right? And I thought he was, he was an especially good actor. Um, so I was like, I want to watch some more Matthew Lillard things. So I watched Scream since, you know, it was his next biggest film or whatever. And I was like, wow, this film's like good. And I didn't know like horror films could be that good because I was a teenager when all the Conjuring films and stuff were like huge and they were the biggest thing in horror. And I just thought they were like a mess. You know, they were overly lenient on jump scares and the stories weren't really that good. It was just, yeah. So I didn't think that, you know, horror movies could be good. And then I watched Scream and it changed my life. And I was like, fuck, man, the horror movies are sick. So I, you know, made it a mission to watch as many horror films as I could. And then one day I watched The Thing. 1983's John Carpenter's The Thing. One of my favorite movies of all time. And it just solidified why I love horror. It's so beautiful in a way that no other genre, perhaps other than maybe sci-fi and romance, can be. Because the people that make horror love horror. Right? They, mm-hmm. they, they absolutely adore horror films. That's why, you know... Someone that directs some romance films will also make a drama every now and then, or they might even make an action film, because they just like making movies. But horror directors usually only ever make horror films, because it's just a medium that they love. Yeah, it's like culty, kind of. Yeah, and you feel that passion, always. Yeah. You know, when you watch a Wes Craven film, especially the, uh, the Scream films, you feel the passion for horror films in them. When you watch a John Carpenter film, you can feel his, his passion for that film, right? For that medium. And I think The Thing is his best example of, of doing that. And also, I just love the, um, the nature of the way they're made. You know, they're, they're cheaply made. You know, one of the best horror films of the 2010s is Creep, to me anyway. I think it's one of the most uniquely terrifying films ever made. And it was made for less than a thousand dollars with a crew of two people. You know, t- they both mm-hmm. acted in it. They were both the cameramen. They were both the writers. They directed it like it was all them. Is it like found footage or because I've never heard about that one? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's like a found footage film. Mm-hmm. Um, came out in 2014. You should totally watch it. There's a second one as well that's really great. And yeah, just just that nature about it. Uh, like Ten Cloverfield Lane cost i think around 13 million to make and it made 110 at the box office just they can do so much with so little because they're so creative true and people you know when when good horror works it works people eat it up and they they lap it up last year was a really good example of that you know with barbarian and x and pearl people really loved horror last year because horror was really good so, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, I would love to talk about horror all day, but, you know, other people <laughs> are here. So I guess I'll let one of you talk now. Uh, just to quickly, a few things. Uh, the Thing was 1982. Uh, just a little quick correction Damn. here. Um, Damn, got my ass. Got yeah. you, got you. Um, <laughs> I am somewhat of an horror agnostic. Like I earlier mentioned, I, I grew up watching none of it at all. 
And similar to you growing up, it always felt like that even horror fans talked trash about horror, how it is uh, so often uncreative and just filmed with jump scares that yeah. the the real the first step to get into the genre is i think a, a bigger hurdle than many other genres yeah absolutely at this point i definitely have my fair share of experiences uh, a lot of the classics obviously 1980s era the thing the fly i particularly love everything practical so pra all the practical yes. effects of yeah, that yeah, era yeah. are just amazing very charming it's it's interesting because I when I first watched like uh, horror movies, I started with the those that would creep up on my Tumblr page, okay, and it would be like the most unknown slasher gory type of movies, and I I was a big fan of Paranormal Activity. <laughs> I would mm -hmm. suck it up. The first one's really good, to be fair. Yeah. I, I stopped three movies in. I think they continue. I don't know how many they, there are now. There's a lot. There's <laughs> like probably. six, I think, or seven. There's a lot of them. Yeah, but I, I was genuinely frightened by the movies. And even if they're bad, they can still like provoke something in the viewer. And I think that's the beautiful thing about horror. It's very... I don't want to say he easy... But the ways with which you can just evoke those emotions are m many, and the ways to get there uh, can be achieved very creatively. And I think it's always a view, you know, to to be witnessing that type of cinema. And that's why I love horror movies back then. Recently, now I'm more into the to the movies that are debatable. If they're horror or not, uh, so uh, you know your Robert Eggert uh, movies or even Ari Aster. Um, right, I get you. Yeah. yeah, I'm into that now. Now I'm now I'm fancy, <laughs> but back then oh. I I would eat everything up. Yeah. Someone's a bit too good for normal horror now, are they? <laughs> yeah. I'm a little on beer side there. I have like mixed feelings on some of the last year's movies you mentioned, so Barbarian and X for example. I enjoyed them to a degree, but I feel like I still lack a little bit of that pre-knowledge about the genre to really appreciate all the nuances there. What I do, however, totally enjoy are like those, as, as B already mentioned, Ariastas, or more specifically in the last years, uh, what the French did. So a climax by Gaspar Noé, or uh, Titan and Raw by Julia Ducano. I think those mm -hmm. are those were just fantastic. And if you gotta assign a genre to that, then I guess it is horror. But it's not like the picture you have in mind when you yeah. think of horror. Well, you know, I've had this conversation a lot in the recent days. And I have no idea why. But I think for some reason, people have such a limited scope on the genre horror of what they would define as horror. Like I hear a lot of times people going like, eh, it's not really a horror, it's more of a it's more of a thriller. And that doesn't really like register too well to me. Because I see thrillers as just kind of a subgenre of horror. You know? Like yeah. Psycho is like a slasher, sure, but it's also like a thriller, you know? A horror movie isn't designed to 
make your fucking skin crawl. You know, it's not designed to terrify you. Mm-hmm. You know, the thing, in my opinion anyway, isn't terrifying. I, th- I think it is, to a degree. But it is quite clearly horror. I mean, yeah, obviously it More is. More like thematically horror, not like the feelings that evoke in you. But horror. yeah, it's mm-hmm. not like... it's. You're not watching it, you know, behind a cushion, think like you know, with your jaw tra- chattering like a cartoon. Like you're, you, you can just sit there and watch the thing, you know. But you would never go. Mm, it's not really horror, is it? Because of course it is. Yeah. No. I think horror is a way more versatile genre than people give it credit for. And when it is being versatile, people try to take it away from horror. Which I think is completely unfair because that's kind of the attitude that, you know, um, the Academy has towards horror. That's why nothing ever really gets nominated. You know, Nope recently got nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars. But it's only kind of horror because the second half of that film is action. Nope. You know? I don't think yeah, Nope, nope. got nom- nominated for Best Picture. Did it not? I oh, think even Nope got scuffed. Scuffed, yeah. Yeah. Damn. It was a great horror year. I you would think that Nope could get one, but Yeah, it's kinda weird that it didn't. Oh well, yeah, no, you're right. I really yeah. thought it did. I must have seen it in a different category or something, but yeah, that no, that's crazy. I thought it did. But yeah, like the the Academy has such like a a snobby way to look at horror films. Mm-hmm. And I yeah, I especially in the case of um Ariaster's horror films, you know, Hereditary and Midsummer. There's been a term, right, that I hate, and I, I didn't really want to bring it up, but it's coming up now. Um, oh, no. It's elevated horror. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I cannot stand that term. Yeah. Because it's, it's like, yeah. it's such a pretentious term to be like, oh, I watch horror movies that are actually good, that are about <laughs> something. You know, it's so, it's so shut up. Yeah. Like, it's crazy. Horror movies have always been about stuff. Always. You know, if you want to take it back to, say, The Fly, you know, that you mentioned earlier. The Fly was a metaphor for the AIDS epidemic. Oh. But, you know, that, that metaphor can easily get lost on somebody. Mm-hmm. They're not aware, yeah. You know, because it's not really shoving it in your face. But they've always been about something. And, yeah, I just, I just think it's quite... I, the term elevated horror really irritates me. Because it just, it feels like someone's trying to put themselves above horror films. Which, you know, I, I absolutely despise. Yeah, bringing the other entries down to a level where they shouldn't be considered uh, real cinema. And yeah, that's... Yeah, that's what it feels like. It's like mm-hmm. going, oh yeah, Midsummer's cinema to me. But, yeah. you know, uh, X, you know, from last year, that's not cinema. I think that's yeah. often of also just like a general problems with like the broader idea of genre especially like in the last few years uh, movies have been less and less specifically assignable to a a genre a lot is less defined yeah super basic example but if you look at parasite it has like elements of probably 10 Mm -hmm. different genres in there so what you're really going to call it and people don't slap the (laughs) <laughs> slept drama on it because drama just fits every time and i think <laughs> i think that uh, it, it even like the sentiment that elevated horror has more depth to it wouldn't really work because 
even the example I pointed out earlier, Climax always gets assigned to this genre, this elevated horror. But I, I wouldn't even say that Climax mm. has more subtext that, than Barbarian, yeah. it's, for yeah, example. No, it doesn't. Not at all. Yeah. Not at all. It's, it, it's simply just people going, well, I like this one, so I've got to come up with a term to mm. excuse it so people don't think that I like those, those crappy horror films. I gotta yeah. separate myself from the crowd. The peasants. You know, they yeah, they can't admit that they like a horror film. I think that that's just a weird genre they created for any movie that vaguely uh, terrifies you. That's that's the goal of the movie. But at the same time, it doesn't use like the classical horror tropes. And therefore, people felt the need to identify it as something different. Yeah, I think that's a big problem. I think people think that horror films are there strictly to terrify you. And if they don't do that, then they've not succeeded at being a horror film. Which is crazy as well, because to bring up, um, like, comedy horror, mm-hmm. I saw so many people watch Megan recently. And, wait. yeah, and they, they were saying stuff like, it made me laugh the whole time. You know, and, and they were saying it as, like, to the film's detriment. You know, like, it's not that scary, it made me laugh the whole time. Yeah, how dare that and movie like, make you laugh? Yeah, <laughs> it's supposed to. The silly dance is supposed to be funny. You, they didn't do that dance and then think, oh yeah, that's really going to scare some people. <laughs> like, <laughs> the whole thing was to make you laugh, dude. It's called comedy horror. I actually had this argument with my brother because my brother was trying to say that comedy horror just isn't a really well-designed genre blend. And I just... I, that's crazy to me because, because say... The Evil Dead 2. It's one of the best movies ever made. Right? I think we can all agree The Evil Dead 2 is pretty I much it. I, I love it. I, I don't know if I would call it one of the best of all time, but I, I totally love it. I have it. At least in the book. horror genre. Yeah, know? yeah, definitely. Horror comedy, um, it's it's like peak. Yeah, and it's a comedy horror, and it's 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 almost a masterpiece at it. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know how people can say stuff like, oh yeah, it made me laugh, therefore it's not a good horror film when stuff like The Evil Dead 2 exists. It's ridiculous. But yeah, I've, I've, seen, I've seen that happen more and more recently, and I think that's a big problem because of the internet. Because, you know, someone will say that, and then someone will read it and go, yeah, that sounds right. And then that's just, you know, they adopt that opinion. Whereas, you know, back in the day, it was, it was a bit harder to to, you know, mold your opinion onto people. I guess to a degree, there were probably instances where, like, friend groups declared the movie as a masterpiece and the general audiences disagreed, but uh, they talked themselves into it. Yeah, it's it's much easier to do that on a mass scale at this point. Definitely, yeah. yeah. Beware of the Twitter. Bia, what's, what's your genre? So my genre, I was actually torn between two. I was thinking of drama, and I ended up just going with sci-fi. You are correct. (laughs) Am I? Yeah. (laughs) Because sci-fi has this plethora of possibilities that are associated with it, you know? You can use, like, very futuristic elements uh, to portray humanity's most important virtues or their most important shortcomings and all of these like just presented in a way that 
it makes us dream about a future or it makes us makes us fear uh, of a future it's always very interesting to me especially because it it will always bring back the fact that we are human at the end of the day and that our nature our problems are always going to be we can always fix them we can always you know cure a disease or make a contraption that's going to enhance our evolution but our real problems societal problems will probably always be there you know the way that we see ourselves internally the way that the questions that we have about the universe can be answered in a movie but at the same time uh, it will always make us think about our philosophy and the nature of what makes us human yeah you know one thing i will say about sci-fi is i think it's i think it's one of the best like base genres because you can make pretty much any type of other genre mm -hmm. film yeah in sci-fi you know you can have a sci-fi drama or a sci-fi sci romance yeah. sci-fi horror you know it's it's really adaptable yeah it's really adaptable and some of my favorite films in every genre are also sci-fi films you know some of my favorite romance films are sci-fi romance and I'm a big fan of Star Wars, so... And obviously we know how adaptable just the universe of Star Wars is. Yeah, there's a variety of... Uh, uh, limitless options. Yeah, limitless options, the way it can be implemented. It's just... Uh, you're talking about uh, sci-fi uh, sci romances, and I I just remembered her, and that's it's just, you know... Uh, oh. The sci-fi aspect is very is very subtle. Yeah. It's close to us, right? Like these types of relationships um with people that we can't see uh, probably in a few years with ChatGPT we will have uh, uh relationships with AI. So um yeah, it's a very important movie for me. I need to rewatch it uh ASAP because I've been it's been on my mind. Her is fantastic. Yeah, it is. I love that film. I was also going to bring up Her and Eternal Sunshine in a very related manner. Um, I love sci-fi specifically when it's used more mm -hmm. as a tool set. Yes, yes. Yeah. Kind of as Crit already pointed out, a lot of my favorite movies are also considered sci-fi movies to a degree. Sci-fi always works best when there's like this one core idea i feel like that just changes a few rule sets if you want to call them about the way we live mm -hmm. yes um, no, I, I get like what you mean. eternal sunshine or her would be great examples for that and the resulting conflict or uh, problem solving resulting from those new struggles those new rule sets to live by always serve for a greater truth I guess, about how humans interact, about how we make decisions. I also think sci-fi works so well as a vehicle for other genres because it it puts across the message even more that a lot of human experiences are... Um, I'm trying to think of the word. They're universal. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. Like, you can put a human experience of love or heartbreak into a sci-fi film and it's just as, you know, real and you feel it just as much as if it was based, you know, on Earth in the modern day. 
arguably you could even consider if we take the example of her um slight spoilers you you'll find that out in like the first 10 minutes but uh, a phoenix is falling in love with a computer voice so uh, this uh, taking this concept of stripping away a body from uh the the love interest if you want to call it that really tells i feel like even more about how the emotions work how it feels how it is to fall in love if the concept of love is just minimalized to a voice only yeah it just makes us think about like the things that makes us human like the details another film that does that specific thing really well is also blade runner 2049 yeah oh true yeah um between ryan gosman's character and anna de Armas's character mm. um i'm forgetting the character name so i'll choose mm-hmm. the actors but yeah like she's quite obviously even though she does technically have a body mm-hmm. um she's quite obviously artificial yeah and he does you know have feelings for her but then you've got to think about how valid those feelings are on her end yeah because she's a product in that case as well and yeah. yeah there's there's many more layers in that case additional layers so yeah, yeah in comparison to her where she's not mm-hmm. like her uh purpose is not to make you fall in love with her so mm-hmm. uh yeah that's different i also think by the way that sci-fi is brilliant because it's uh its life is very long probably longer than any you know um genre just because it can't get old because of the limitless options. You know, sci-fi in the 60s and sci-fi now are completely different, but they're still distinctly sci-fi. Mm-hmm. And it's still they're still pumping out immaculate films within the genre. And, you know, to go back to, say, Star Wars, how lo- like 40, 40-odd years Star Wars has been going. And it doesn't seem to be ending. Yeah, with the shows and the... Because there's just limitless possibilities even within that. Yeah. And, you know, I wouldn't mind a a new Blade Runner film, to be honest. Everything is so rife with potential within sci-fi. Every world they create, you know, the alien world from, obviously, Ridley Scott's Alien. That world is so rife with potential. Say, like, Prometheus, where... You know, they completely go off xenomorphs for basically the entire film because, you know, they're looking for the creators and stuff mm-hmm. like that. It's a complete side story away from the main villain of that genre. And it works still. I think sci-fi is also so useful to <clears throat> just entertain our curiosity about the world, right? And the universe and the deep philosophical questions that we have within us. For example, Avatar, the the last one, the Avatar 2, The Way of Water, I think it, it has like this potential to change minds or make people see nature in a different way and the way that we treat it uh, with the, the relationships that were portrayed in the movie. I don't want to spoiler, but with certain parts of the, the world of Pandora. And I think cinema has this power to just make you feel something you didn't feel before and make you think about things in a different way and sci-fi is great for that yeah i'm glad you brought up the way of water by the way because i think that movie fucks that movie is so good yeah 
I guess that brings us to my answer. I did a bit of a cop-out, but as we already established, we're not too keen on strict mm -hmm. genre definitions anyways. I think it counts. My answer yeah. was stop motion. Beautiful. I'm a big fan, as I already earlier mentioned, of anything practical. And when I see a few foxes running around <laughs> and you can see every single fingerprint of the animators in their fur, then I'm just happy. Yeah. Mwah. Stop motion is so beautiful. I don't think there's a single genre or subgenre, if you want to call this whatever, that has as good a track record as stop motion does. Like, you struggle to find a bad stop motion film. I think one of the reasons why stop motion has such a good track record is the huge barrier of entry where it just takes so much time to create an animated movie. Like, in the last year, we got uh, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, yeah. which was magnificent. Um, we also got Wendell vs. Wild by Henry Selleck, another great stop-motion hey, movie. Hey, well, and you corrected me earlier about the thing, so I'm about to correct you now. It's Wendell and Wild, not Wendell vs. Oh, Wild. Yeah, yeah take that. you're totally right. You're totally right. Damn. Are we counting? <laughs> and I don't know. I don't know about uh, how Wendell and Wild mm. um, took in the making, but I, as far as I know, the Guillermo del Toro Pinocchio has been in the making for ten years now. I think. So, I think I read that Wendell and Wilds took about seven years. Yeah. To make it. Yeah. So there's this giant barrier. They rarely make money, and. I think you actually have to have a really solid project already at your hand for any studio to go ahead and fund it. So there's, yeah. there's kind of this inherent quality control within the genre, if you want to call it that. Yeah, it's risky. I remember the last stop motion movie I watched, I was a little bit traumatized, <laughs> which was The Wolf House. Do you remember, Zayt? Oh, yeah. Like yeah, The Wolf Casa House Lolo. is a... It's a weird specific example because it's like actually combining multiple animation styles. Yeah. And it's super indie and super. It, it, it's such an Arthas animation movie. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it, it's very unique and uh, technically insanely well done. Maybe we'll talk about it one day. I hope one so. Day. I would actually <laughs> love to revisit the movie. Um, I think there's a lot to pick at it. Next question. Okay, yeah, next question. Sure. What is a movie that should be, in your opinion, obliterated from the letterbox top 250? I, I can start off with one that I know Bia just watched for this episode or tried to tried and to. kind of I failed at to. the end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a Brazilian movie. It's very high up the letterbox list. I think it's actually like number five, around about there. A Dog's Will. I think I, I checked it. It's third. Let me check again. A Dog's Will is a Brazilian comedy that I have never heard anything positive about by anyone who doesn't speak Portuguese. So this is a very weird instance where it's even difficult to get the movie with any English subtitles. It seems like there haven't been a lot of prints outside of Brazil. And yeah. the general agreement within Bristol seems to be that this is the greatest comedy of all time. They seem to rate it with five stars into oblivion, whilst the rest of the world is not in on the joke. 
I finally found a source after like two years of looking. <laughs> it took me ages to get to this movie. It was difficult for me as well. I, 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 I'm baffled. I assumed there was a lot of lost in translation stuff, which would make for a great discussion on a separate uh, occasion, I guess, because I think there's a lot of a lot to get into there. But Beer, you watched it and you didn't seem to enjoy it that much. You speak Portuguese. Where's the problem? Yeah, I, I actually, I tried to find some subtitles in English so I couldn't know like what you guys were getting and what the Portuguese people were, you know, understanding. Uh, Portuguese speaking people, of course, because you know Brazilian, uh, Portugal, whatever. I was at first surprised by the genre because. As as you know, I I didn't even read the synopsis. I I didn't know what it was. I didn't read anything about it. Uh, I just knew it was the highest rated movie like ever um, from Brazil, and um, I started watching it, and I was like, oh, this is a comedy, interesting, and it's played in a way that it's uh, it looks a lot like a novella, so a soap opera. Mm -hmm. For me, the the type of comedy it's very fast paced. At times, I laughed. Okay, uh, I I was enjoying some of the jokes, some of the scenery. It's very it's well crafted in a way, but I just couldn't connect. I know they're like trying to talk about religion and the um, the hypocrisy of church of the church and the way that men treat women in marriages. All of that, but it just it just didn't connect, and the quality of it overall, it didn't feel like it justifies the place that it has in the on that list. I just couldn't, <laughs> I just couldn't understand. I'm with you, side because as I said, I was watching it in Portuguese. It was surprisingly easy to understand because sometimes you know, even from Portuguese from Portugal to Brazilian Portuguese. There's some uh, words or expressions that get lost in translation, but for me, yeah, it was. I was a little bit bored. I was m bored most of the times, uh, and I I couldn't finish. Uh, couldn't finish the movie. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. To me, actually, the the last thirty minutes, so around about that, what you're missing might be my favorite part. <laughs> I, I I have some mm. memories of those at least. Um, that that was ingrained in my mind but it's like it's yeah. just generally at best a serviceable movie to me and with that in mind and the knowledge whilst watching it that as you pointed out it is number three on letterboxd um with that knowledge in mind it, yeah. it is kind of a frustrating watch to to feel like <laughs> why because even even if you yeah. look at it from a perspective of okay, Bristle maybe just wanted to be represented, you know, high up the list. They have City of God. Yeah. But I think this one appeases to the most uh, number of people, you know? Within Brazil, uh, you mean? I think it has, mm -hmm. yeah, within Brazil, um, the type of comedy, it's very typical. Of, so I grew up watching Brazilian soap operas, uh, the so-called novelas, and it's it's very similar the type of comedy presented in this movie. It's maybe that, and there's I think there's a, an element of nostalgia that might be at play here. 
uh, from people that probably watched it when they were younger and now it's, you know, highly rated. Now they install Letterboxd and they see it high up the list and they were like, oh yeah, that was a great movie. <laughs> yeah, that was a great movie, yeah. I think this this is based on a book, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Um, it, I don't know if you noticed, but it plays a lot like a, a theater play. It's very theatrical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it looks like the type of story that she would uh, study in uh, high school, uh, in fact. There's a similar story uh, um, in that we study in Portugal. So, um, yeah, I think that that might be it. It's just like a nostalgia factor. Crazy. I was searching for a movie to to trash <laughs> on the top, <laughs> on the letterbox top 50. Not top 50, top 250. And... I was surprised to see this one there. So R R R. Everyone loved it when it came out. It was, and it still is, revered, uh, very hyped. Um, it's, I think it's on the two hundred two hundred and forty third position in the list. So not very high. Um, People are gonna fulfill your dreams very soon, though. Yeah, it's probably gonna is going to come out, uh, come off the list. Soonish. Soon, yeah. Once the you know popularity fades out, so this is not, from my understanding, it this is not a Bollywood movie. Um, no. But I would, like, when I was watching it, I didn't have that information, so I was considering the, this movie to be my first Bollywood watch, and and I was excited, and it was very fun. Okay, the action scene, the action scenes were cool and out of the pocket at times just very ridiculous but in a good way that made me laugh and made me enjoy the movie but it's filled with corny moments that didn't land well with me and even if i'm happy that south asian uh i think it's from tulugu if i'm i think i'm pronouncing that right it's a south asian production um mm -hmm. so i'm still happy that it made a buzz here on our side of the globe but i don't think it's worthy of being there i think there's uh i think it's very hyped it's a very enjoyable but uh mediocre movie <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I think it's it's kind of difficult to gauge it it's definitely not trying to like cohere to any <laughs> western filmmaking rules if you want to call them yeah. that and the, I don't think there's like necessarily something wrong in that. Um, some of my favorite movies break rules, supposed rules of filmmaking all the time. If you have a reason for it, then that's totally fine and justified. I think the reason with RRR just being fun, like the, the goal of it all is to be the most over-the-top thing it could ever be. And I think it pretty much succeeds at that. Most people will agree on that point, but I can see how that doesn't really justify in your mind being mm -hmm. on that list. Yeah, or being as hyped as it was, I guess, but... However, we have the, the hottest take left to judge on. Oh. Crit waiting I in forgot. the background. <laughs> it's been silent because he's been preparing. Well, I've been silent because... 
I haven't seen either of the films that you said, so I can't really comment on that. However, I'm pretty sure we've all seen the film I'm picking. Mm-hmm. I think we need to get Fight Club out of here. What? Why is it here? Why is it there? Fight Club is at 77. Fair. Outrageous. No. Right. Outrageous. David Fincher only has one other film, I think, in the top 250, and mm-hmm. I think it's seven at, like, 80... Yeah, at 87, mm-hmm. right? Fight Club is not even a top three David Fincher film, let alone a top 250 film of all time. It's insane, right? Like, okay, what are your guys' favourite Fincher films? Uh, that would be Fight Club. <laughs> You're crazy! <laughs> or no. <laughs> we're getting into, we're getting to the interesting part here. Uh, I, I want to no, no, I want to I want to like hear you out and and then I'll add my my stuff towards it. Okay. Well, first of all, objective fact, right? Not opinion, fact. The Social Network no. is the best David Fincher <laughs> film. Okay? It's I fact. I still have to see that because I've watched the movie and I I I just don't feel that it was. But I, you're on crack. No. You know, I am, crack. because you know what's my favorite Fincher movie? The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. That's the one. What? And yeah. everybody's always, what do you mean? <laughs> what? Yeah. Oh my god. It's the most tender. It's masterfully crafted. It's beautiful. It always brings me to tears. It's <laughs> mwah mwah. I love it. The social network. Oh, what the I guess a guy I guess a guy just like throws something at the at the floor during his monologue when he's angry. Um and that's okay, that's <laughs> makes the movie, you know. This is insanity. <laughs> right. Crit, at least at least now you understand how we feel about your answer and how a lot of the f- listeners are gonna feel. <laughs> right. Benjamin, but right. I'm not even gonna address that. That's a whole different bag of worms. Okay, I'm not even getting into that. That's a problem. Do you hate it? Wait, wait, <laughs> wait do you hate that it? That is a problem. Uh I don't like it. I don't hate okay. it, but David Fincher has made some very good fucking films. Yeah. Some yeah. very good films. And Benjamin Button is not one of them. You know, you got that perfect essay that you received from a student sometimes. But then that <laughs> everything is well written. The points are all there. But sometimes you have that tenderness, the emotion. No, you know? You and it's it's decently written, and that's the curious case of Benjamin Button. Shit. But it's perfect. It's not decently You're written. It's perfect. Shit. <laughs> wait, so okay, wait. Just, okay, before I shit on Fight Club for a second, would you replace Fight Club with The Curious yes. Case of Benjamin yes, Button? <laughs> but I'm biased. <laughs> it wouldn't oh, be, it wouldn't is, be a rational... This is stupid. It wouldn't be a rational substitution, you know? I'm biased. This is stupid. It's okay. This is stupid. <laughs> Fight Club, right, right. Fight Club works twice. That's it. It works the first time if you don't know the twist, right? And then, cool, once you know the twist, you can watch it a second time, you notice some stuff, and then the third time is just dead, right? It doesn't work again, right? Okay. I disagree. Second point. No, you're wrong, right? (laughs) (laughs) I think I just watched it one time, so I'm, you know, it works for me. (laughs) It also breeds... Um, 
the literally me guys. The audience actively make the film worse. Yeah. Like yeah, that's that's kind of a I I would argue that's kind of an external problem that yeah. that should be discussed separately. Sure. Right? sure. But that, I that's but fair. I totally agree that that uh, at least nowadays Fight Club has this it comes with a lot of lot of baggage and is asso- associated with like a certain group of film fans. Right. So yeah, all right. Okay. So I can't help but like see it and cringe. But my main my main point if if it's not even the director's best film, I can't see how it how it's a top one hundred film of all time. I think it's one of the most overhyped films of all time. Uh, I don't think it looks particularly well. I think it, it you know it's it's got that that nineties David Fincher look where it's just dark and ugh. And gross, which I know is kind of the vibe he's going for. Yeah. But also, it's not fun to see. Like, Seven has that same look. But it feels better. You know, it's for some reason, it works better for that story. So I would even be happy if we removed Fight Club and Seven stayed. I think Seven is better than Fight Club, even though I don't think Seven is too great either, and I don't think Seven should be there either, but here we are. I think a lot of what we're getting here at is differences in stylization and preferences there, because I mainly grew up in the 2000s, even though I was born in the 90s. I always kind of like attached myself to 90s culture with like skateboarding and some stuff of those kinds, and I always thought that the the last decade before me was the cooler one uh, compared mm-hmm. to like all the current stuff culture that was going on. Yeah, you could put it that way, I guess. And to me, it, that Fight Club came out in '99. It perfectly summed up a whole decade of filmmaking, where it's the the frustration with the lack of purpose. It's the gritty aesthetic you pointed out that I personally totally like I, I i'm pretty much in love with that aesthetic it yeah i think the the general vibe just summarized this decade of kind of darkness and despair and i i don't see it as any problem at all i think it's a perfect piece of its time yeah a turning of the century kind of movie mm-hmm. where you begin to reflect on all the um, you know, you know the way that an individual sees himself in the system, you know, and capitalism. And yeah, I guess, and I guess to to finish off the the point, I think it it works on additional watches, but I'm also really biased here. This is definitely one of the movies where I watched it earlier on down my, I guess, film discovery. And this was one of the, maybe the first movie where I realized that film could be more than just, uh, just entertainment, where, where it could bring up deeper thoughts. And you could definitely make the argument, and I, I to a degree agree there uh, nowadays, that Fight Club is very shallow with the things it tries to bring up, because it tries to tackle quite a few 
subjects at once. And I heard that for many people that doesn't work that well. But this is my thing. This is, this is why I brought up the fan base earlier though, right? So Fight Club is, in my opinion anyway, trying to deconstruct masculinity, right? Yeah. yeah. It, it, you know, it's a, it's a criticism on what's typically seen as masculine behavior and how toxic that can be. Mm -hmm. I said this in a video once, actually, and I got my favorite hate comment I've ever gotten before because of that, um, because of that stance. But I think the, f the fact that it's gone at such an audience that does not understand that message, I don't think th the film did e a good enough job at portraying that message. I think it fails at the one thing it was trying to do. I just don't think it did it so well. In fact, it did it so poorly that people have looped back around where it almost feels like propaganda for the opposite thing it's trying to preach. Yeah, I, yeah. I see what you mean there. Um, I, I guess I mainly disagree for the fact that it became just one of those infamous movies that, as I pointed out earlier, it is one of the first movies you will find if you try to look deeper into movies. So the the general audience for it is just so enormous that there are gonna be a lot of idiots in there. And if a lot of lesser known films that with a similar vagueness would reach those audiences, I feel like you would have a lot of misunderstanding with many, many films. And that a lot of the baggage just came, uh, in the case of Fight Club, with reaching that uh, those audiences. This wasn't like a blockbuster movie. This wasn't anything that was supposed to reach those audiences. Yeah. That's what society m turned it into, I guess. I mean, yeah. I I get that to a degree, but also that's that's still to the detriment of the film. You you should always prepare for an audience that you're not targeting for. Always. I, I disagree. I disagree with that, but I agree with the sentiment that it is to the detriment of the movie. Best case scenario, you just pointed it out. That's that's already like a proof that to some people that's what ends up happening. I hugely disagree that you have to have a certain group of people in mind. I feel like that's that every filmmaker every case should have the control to make the movie that he wants to make well obviously I'm not, I'm not saying that what i'm saying is yeah. obviously the target for the, if you're if you're trying to deconstruct masculinity you're not trying to preach that to men that already know that you know like people that already know masculinity can be toxic gain nothing from the film right you're trying to preach to the people that you are trying to teach but they're the people that are misconstruing the message so it's just not conveyed clear enough i guess two two points on that um we have to keep in mind we're talking about a 24 year old movie the term toxic masculinity definitely didn't exist in Obviously. 1999 this was all very much ahead of its time uh, which i give it credit for and um other than that I I can see your point. I don't think that a movie has to like bring the solution to a problem. Like uh, you were saying that 
it is not trying to teach that to the people who already know that toxic masculinity is wrong. I don't think it needs to teach that toxic masculinity is wrong. It can just show it and that's fine. Well, uh, yeah, I, I know, but like, I just feel like you're not... Ri like, if there's a movie and the point of the movie is racism bad, but you're only ever showing that to people who already know racism is bad, then what's the point? You're telling them something yeah. they already know. I, I see your And point. it's not reaching point. any kind of audience. I mean, when you make a film with that kind of message or that kind of uh, push behind it, you want to reach the people, you know, so to, to inspire change, right? That's, that's the mm -hmm. point. But this, like, imagine if a film came out, which was a racism bad film, and then people watched it, and then there was like, yeah, racism is cool. And then they got more racist. <laughs> You'd be like, what the fuck? What? How did this film fuck right. this up? So your problem is the ambiguity of the, the message uh, or yeah. the aesthetic, uh, aesthetic, because it's going to appeal to probably two types of crowds that stand in opposite directions. I can see that. Yeah. I, so yeah, I, ju I, I just think that. it fails at delivering the message it's trying to deliver. And then also, I just think it's overrated in general. I just, I, you know, aside from that, I just, I just feel like it's, it's way overhyped. That's totally fair. That's fine. And that's why we're asking the questions to get to know each other's tastes. That's what we're here for. Benjamin Button. No, I know that crit. I'm going to go to sleep it's thinking fun. about Benjamin Button. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe you'll get younger, you know? <laughs> yeah, next question. Yes. Our next question is a film you think is great, but you never want to watch again. George, take it away. Uh, just to preference this, I want to point out that we're talking about great movies. We're all agreeing that those are great uh, before we start any more controversy with our takes. Yeah, yeah. I chose for a great movie that I never want to see again, the 2002 released Gaspar Noé, again, I guess, horror movie, Irreversible. It is horror. <laughs> I, I'm there with you. Go off. I guess I will go into it a bit. Gaspar Noé is generally known as more extreme director. He doesn't shy back from showing violence, showing sexuality. And this movie is kind of one of the pinnacle movies of the so-called French new extremity wave. During the 2000s, the French, for some reason, decided to make super fucked up movies, and I love a lot of them. I personally think Irreversible, whilst having a clear intent with a scene that happens around the middle, I'm gonna spoil it soon, uh, it still is something I don't wanna go through again. Understandable. Uh, so the scene in question is a 10 minute long uncut rape scene in an alley. It is super intense. You have to suffer through it for quite a while. And whilst I get the point, it has definitely a reason to be in the story. It has thematic reasons. The whole story and the story structure is supposed to, in my opinion, convey this feeling of not being able to ever take back what you did yeah. 
and it serves a great purpose with that but it's a super intense watch and i will not go through that again i i'm there with you i could not watch irreversible again uh that particular scene the whole movie feels low and somber and hopeless and when that scene hits it's it's very hard to watch very hard to watch and i'm not saying that i hate the movie i i enjoyed the movie for what it is even with the shock uh, factor um i think it has uh, the right to be there but yeah it's not worth the the second watch not at all. Crit, you, you haven't watched it, right? I have not, no. But also, from the sounds of it, I don't think I want to. Yeah. It's a very intense movie. It's um, very yeah. hard to recommend. Like, uh, rape scenes yeah. aren't exactly my favourite. Also, yeah, I imagine that's actually really hard to recommend, right? Like, oh, you should see this film, it's really great. And then they watch it and it's got a 10 minute rape scene. I actually, I watched this when it was a um, movie. And... I watched it with two friends of mine. All of the three of us didn't know what we're getting into. We had heard of Gaspar Noé before. I think I had seen, and one other, one of the others had seen Climax before. So we were vaguely aware that it's an extreme director. Um, we were not prepared for what was to come. Oh, yeah, so but... it was... It was late into your Gaspar, uh, Gaspar Noé's uh, journey. Not really. I think I might have started off with Climax. So Climax released in 2018. 18. And yeah. I haven't been like that crazy of a movie buff before that. You know what's weird is that... So Irreversible was my first Gaspar Noé's movie. Uh, oh, wow. And I went searching for more of him, you know? Because I was interested in the way that he was brave or the way that he wanted to take risks with portraying such shocking uh, scenes and themes. So I wanted to see more of that like in a very peculiar, uh, with a very peculiar curiosity. Yeah, he's, he's definitely an interesting guy. I, I'm not sure if I would have continued to search out movies personally <laughs> if that was my first Gaspar Noé. Yeah. Um, I'm glad that I did. Um, he's, yeah, he's definitely same. one of my favorite directors. I think the second one I watched was uh, Love. Um, <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. That's also not my favorite. So yeah. <laughs> congrats on continuing. Your favorite is the, the latest one, right? Or Climax. Uh, either Climax or Vortex. Vortex yeah. 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 Climax is my favorite. Mm -hmm. Same, by the way. Oh. We agree. For once. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> all, all this climax love. Love that. So that brings us to you, Bia. Yeah, I was going to say, Bia, do you want to go? In the very same vein, Incendies uh, is the movie that I wouldn't watch again. But I still think it's a masterpiece by Denis mm -hmm. Villeneuve. Um, so the, the movie, uh, I think it's based on a stage play. I have no idea how it would be played on a, on a stage or uh, on a theater. Yeah. But um, it runs for two hours, very slow paced. Uh, so it's, I don't know if you guys are f familiar. Did you watch it? I have seen it. Yeah. yeah. Crit, did you? I have not. No. 
Okay. I'm just going to brush over a little bit of the story. It's a story about uh, a mother that leaves a letter to their children after she dies so they can find the their father and their lost brother. And all of this is set in Canada on the first part. And on the second part, we have a, a story that is split into two timelines where in one we have the mother living and growing up in... Uh, I don't think they name the country or they give it a different name, but it's based on the Lebanese civil war. So she's living through that and she's participating on that. And on the other timeline, you have the daughter uh, just finding out all about her mother's history and trying to find their, uh, her father. And it's very intense, <laughs> very, very tragic by the end because you're left in complete shock of the the plot twist, right? It's mm -hmm. and even there's like a similar scene. scene. Uh, I wouldn't say that it's uh, comparable to Irreversible, but it has a scene that it plays along the same veins. Yeah, yeah. it's very similar. But I think that what gets me the most is the way that scene is correlated to the end, and um, it broke me. I I just very emotional very tragic and i wouldn't it's hard for me to recommend this movie but because i think it's an important watch because of the civil war aspect and the traditions that were imposed on women in the 70s in that area and at the same time there's like this part of the story because at the at the end it's a story about a family um it's hard for me to do it I want people to watch it, but at the same time, I, I don't. I think it's easier to recommend that one than oh, Irreversible. Definitely. So I can I can do the deed for you. You just name the names and I will recommend awesome these to them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Because I, uh, this movie, one of its main problems, it's probably the pacing as well. I like slow movies, but it's for, for me to recommend it to like a friend that is not used to watching slow movies, it's hard because it's a slow movie with a very, very shocking payoff. And mm -hmm. um, Almost something that Haneke could do, now that I think of it. Yeah, now I, you got me thinking about Seventh Continent. <laughs> <Yeah>. Anyways, uh, <laughs> to lighten the moods up a bit, uh, we have again Crit on our side who will tell us now what movie he never wants to see again, and I'm curious to find out why. I'm going to make people so mad again. The film that I think is great, okay, I think it's so great, is Wally. That didn't seem true. <laughs> that didn't seem true. So great. <laughs> no, okay, no, right, because I have this argument all the time about Wally. I like Wally. I think it's really good. I think it's great. But that's it. I don't. I don't think it's anything better than just great. Right. I don't think it's a masterpiece. I think it's a seven out of ten film. It's a great film. You don't want to watch the I robot. I couldn't. I couldn't care less about this film. I just Jesus, couldn't. Why, why? Because listen, the first like half an hour or first half maybe is beautiful. I love it. Everything that start 
everything on earth, right? Everything on earth is great. I think it's some of the best dialogueless, you know, um, mm-hmm. animated cinema ever made. It, it's beautiful. Talking about a big genre there, yeah, keep going. <laughs> Just saying. Yeah, in the animated in the animated uh, medium, it's some of the best. Um, I'm trying to. What's the word? Not dialogueless. I'm silent. <laughs> there's a word that I'm looking for and I can't think of it. But it's it's the best sequence was... without dialogue, pretty much ever in animation. There's maybe a contestant. Um, I'm just gonna shout that out real quick. The Red Turtle. The Red Turtle. Yeah. It's a completely dialogueless. It's a French movie, as far as I know, but it is animated by Studio Ghibli. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yeah. Uh, I'm familiar with the film. It's perfect. But I, I think my point still stands, honestly. Yeah. But then we go to space, and, and- this film loses me entirely. Like, I just. I don't like the villain. I don't think this film needed a villain at all. I don't know why he's there. Especially a twist villain, by the way. Which is so odd to just throw into this random film. But doesn't need it. Um, I hate all the stuff with the the people in the chairs. Mm-hmm. Uh, every scene with them I just wish wasn't there. I don't like all the Scooby-Doo crap. Of just Wally and Eve running around the spaceship. uh, It just, I don't, I think the first half an hour to 40 minutes of this film is S-tier Pixar animation. And then everything else is C or B-tier. As an accumulation, that that, that first, you know, 30, 40 minutes is so great that it holds the rest of the movie up to a standard where I think I can still say this is a great movie. Mm-hmm. But I never want to rewatch it because I don't ever want to sit through that second half. Ever. I, I don't find it that enjoyable. I'd rather... I'd, honestly, like because I think Cars is a lesser film. Cars? But, Cars? Yeah, yeah. Cars from, you know, Pixar. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a lesser Pixar film. I would rather watch Cars. Yeah, I can I can totally see that how how you feel about that. It's generally a big problem with movies if they can start out strong but fail to like give a satisfying ending. I feel like it's always better if it continuously grows on you. Yeah. And to a degree, I agree. So like everything on earth is probably the best Pixar has ever done in my opinion. I can I can agree. I think that the second half I'm I'm pretty sure it's pretty much split in half actually. Yeah. I I think that the second half can't hold up to that potential. I agree with you there. It's it's definitely for me not as bad as for you. I think there's also a bit of nostalgia playing into it cuz I saw it when mm. it came out so it, I was pretty young still. It's true. And honestly, it the second half probably isn't even as bad as I think it is. But I think it's because that first half is so good that that second mm-hmm. half seems just worse than it is in comparison. Because I'm spending the entire time salty that the film just isn't as good as it was like 10 minutes ago. Couldn't live up to the expectations it sets itself. Yeah. 
Now I'm very curious to watch the movie again because I watched it probably when when I was 13 or 14, I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's been a while. I watched it like a couple of times then. I just can't remember having those feelings towards towards it. I I quite enjoyed going on an adventure with Wally to space and having humanity as just play portrayed in a very prophetic way, I guess. Mm-hmm. As if we continue to do this, this is what's going to happen. This is how our bodies are going to look like. This is how our minds are going to be programmed to think. And I th- I, I quite enjoy that part of the movie. Even the, the romance, the little romance with Eve and Wally, uh, which was very charming. So I would have to watch it to see the the real difference between the first part and the second part because mm-hmm. um i just didn't see it then i even have to uh, now you that you brought up the romance i thought you were gonna mention the little side romantic story between the two humans that basically only got together you to wally and i i remember that mm-hmm. like that's that's yeah. like, i still have memories of the second part that i I remember and I like. Like, take your eyes off the screen. Look at each other. I do just want to um, point out there is one scene in that second half that I do really like, and it's when um, Wally and Eve get like ejected out the ship. Yeah, that sort of thing. And they have like the fire extinguisher, and they're like kind of dancing in space. That's a very beautiful scene. It is. That is like just a small glimpse of how good that film could have been the entire time. Mm-hmm. So yeah, um, I did have another point about Wally that I want. Oh right. Just real quick, kind of off base, but on base. Wally is now the first Pixar film to get a Criterion release. True, right? yeah. Oh. Um, thoughts, real quick on that. Since I have like nostalgic memories uh, towards it, and I feel like this was kind of the end of the golden era of Pixar. I I don't even think that the the more modern so called masterpieces like Soul and coco hold up to that level uh no, so to me in, in my mind wally is probably one of might still be my favorite pixar a lot of nostalgia in there so i don't mind at all i was i thought it was quite cool when i when i saw that news yeah i might get it okay that's fine do you would you replace it with any other pixar movie but yeah absolutely see this is the thing like I don't mind it getting a Criterion release. I just think it's a bit crazy that it's the first Pixar to get a Criterion release. You know, because Criterion releases are supposed to be for, like, you know, the most significant films, you know, ever made and important cultural, you know. I feel like Toy Story, the first Toy Story, deserved it more. Mm -hmm. One, I just think it's a, a better film. I just think it is a better film. It's worse animated, obviously, but... I think one is a better film and it it's the first fully 3D animated and um feature ever. And you know, it's incredibly good to say it's the first. So I definitely felt like that should have had a criterion release and also Monsters Inc and The Incredibles just cuz they're better films in my opinion. But yeah. Both of them? <laughs> <laughs> Just all of them. I think Toy Story. No, I was. I was. Yeah. Oh, the Incredibles. Both of the Incredibles. Uh, no, 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 no. Okay. Just, just the first. The Incredibles. Yeah. Yeah, No, the Incredibles too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Which brings us to our next question. 
a film you would love to experience again for the very first time? Mine is very easy. It's no surprise. The movie I would like to just wipe my memory and watch it again is Portrait of a Lady on Fire. So Portrait of a Lady on Fire, for those who don't know, is directed by Céline Sciamma. It starts Adèle Anel and Noémie Merlin. I watched it the other day. It still stands as one of my favorite movies ever for its beautiful compositions, the way that um, the, the music is not really used, but when it, it is used, it's used very purposefully and it serves uh, the story. And it also serves the time in which the movie is set. In terms of sound production, it's very minimal, but yet rich with the fireplace and the wind and the waves, um, almost reaches ASMR levels. And for the story, it just builds up to one of the most well-crafted last 10, 10 uh, probably 10, 15 minutes of the movie. It just pays off really well and I would like to just forget about it and watch those last 10 minutes or the entire movie again yeah it's worth it have you guys watched it I know Zayt, uh, George did but what about you Chris I have seen it before but I haven't seen it recently I have uh, watch listed it but I also have watch listed a million films um, because I want to rewatch it. I don't remember much about it, and I mm -hmm. think I saw it at a time when I just I wasn't mentally prepared. able to appreciate it. Yeah. yeah, you weren't prepared to receive it. This masterpiece. <laughs> no, I think I just put it on thinking it was going to be like just you know an easy watch or whatever. Because I was trying to get into more yeah. um, European cinema, and that had just come out, and I heard like you know it had good, really good reviews. So I was like, yeah, I'll just throw this on, and you know. It was 2019, so you know I was yeah, about was. 18. So yeah, I just don't, I don't think I was, I was ready for it. And now, so you are. I, I want to rewatch. Yes, I trust. I've grown you. a lot. You can go. You can go. You can go and watch. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you know what I think uh, on my rewatch. I think yes. I only watched it once so far. Still, still need to get to it. I loved it a lot watching it the very first time, and since then I actually since we already brought it up earlier i actually got the criterion for this so i'm looking forward to watching nice. it again and maybe i'm not sure if it's on there but maybe watch it with a celine sciamma audio commentary we'll see yeah it was my cool. second time watching it i watched it uh, last week i think and i watched it with a friend because i was bothering him you know to, <laughs> you have to watch this you have to watch this he didn't like his, like it as much as I did, but you know, at least he, he tried. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm happy. What about you guys? Uh, George, do you want to go? Oh uh, sure. I did something sneaky here. It is obviously one of my favorite movies. I wouldn't have chosen it otherwise, but it also fits thematically. I chose Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. We already talked uh, briefly about it earlier. It's a beautiful film. It was the moment I probably realized that Charlie Kaufman is gonna be my favorite writer of all time. It was, I think, his third movie, the third movie of him that I watched, and I totally fell in love with it. And since 
the one of the themes or ideas of this sci-fi movie is that you can erase memories. I thought there's something quite poetic to <laughs> a question that implies that we're living in a world where you can erase memories. So I use that to erase eternal sunshine of the spotless mind and watch that movie again. I can I can imagine you picking this and then like sitting back in an armchair twiddling your mustache thinking you were really clever. Like, <laughs> you gotta imagine me sitting there in a suit and a glass of bourbon in my hand. Pipe in my mouth. <laughs> but he was so funny. He was like, <laughs> I know what I'm yeah. gonna say. Yeah. Quickly on your pick, I really love Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Like a lot. And I've been begging my girlfriend to watch it because she's never seen it. Oh, wow. And she just, every single time we sit down to watch it, I immediately turn it off. Because I see her face and I'm like, you're not ready. <laughs> she, she mentally I, you're just not prepared right now and i, I <laughs> she always just seems really happy and i'm like oh, i can't do this to you which is interesting i mean i don't want to get into it a lot now because it's it's like <laughs> interpretation of the ending of the movie which is a bit spoilery i'm sure we're gonna talk about it in depth at some point but to me it is not a sad ending i have quite a positive interpretation of it so me too okay just wanted to get it out there yeah just just on the point of me saying she's not ready i not that it's sad but more that it's just emotionally, emotionally exhausting is yeah exactly you know you experience a lot of emotions in this film mm -hmm. and you also got gotta like at least at the beginning you you should pay attention yes it, it's one of those movies where it's it's worth fully committing to it and i i get the frustration if you're sitting next to someone yeah and you're trying to show it to them and they don't commit to it so i get it and also if they miss like the first 20 minutes of this film it's over you know the rest of the film's not really gonna work for you i don't think i think it would work but it definitely adds an additional layer to it also, I do think it's quite funny um, that um, Michael Gondry directed yeah. this, right? Yeah. Um, I I love that like he directed this and then he went on to direct Be Kind Rewind, which is just such a different film. Like it's Eternal Sunshine is the most emotionally exhausting film you could watch, mm. and then Be Kind Rewind is like such a I don't I'm not paying attention to any of this, but it's cool kind of movie his filmography is super random and super odd i think the one through line through uh, michel gondry's filmography is that he's mainly a super visual guy he bonded with charlie kaufman so he obviously has the potential to like see depth in it i don't really think it's that necessary to him like, it's, it's a great to compare Eternal Sunshine with something like being John Malkovich, where it's the uh, what Spike Jones did of a Charlie Kaufman script. And all of those three guys are close friends in real life. And you can see how Spike Jones really can be visual, but cares himself about the depth. Whilst I think Michel Gondré added the visuals and relied on Charlie Kaufman to deliver the depth. 
it totally works in Eternal Sunshine, but yeah, Michel Gondry is, is a weird guy with his filmography. What did he make beside uh, Eternal Sunshine? I think he made Be Kind Rewind. Signs of Sleep? He also did Green Hornet. Oh, he did, didn't Green he? Hornet? Oh, no. Oh, oh no. and and he also did something, the Dave Chappelle Block Party documentary. Oh, yes. That's also Michel Gondry. That's how I discovered him, actually. That's funny. Yeah, super random. Yeah, no, I watched one of his films. I, th I think it was called The Science of Sleep. But uh, you might have to fact check me on that because mm. that might be a completely different guy. And as to point out, Green Hornet is regarded as a really bad movie and I think deservedly so. But that's story. Like, there's really interesting visual aspects to it that, again, definitely is Michel Gondry's mind. It is really fun as well. It's mm -hmm. a bad movie, but it is really fun. Yeah. He pairs himself with Leo Kara and um, Bon Joon Ho in uh, Tokyo. I didn't know it was him. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, that too. I forgot about that. Yeah. Interesting filmmaker. Interesting. He made a very, very varying quality. Mm-hmm. Which brings us to Ukrit. The film I would love to experience again for the first time is Scream. So I mentioned in my little horror segment that Scream was the first horror film that I watched that I really liked. Mm -hmm. And Scream now is my favorite franchise. It just overtook Rocky. I love the Scream films so much. And that first film as a whodunit, is top tier. It is Wes Craven at his peak. I, thi I think it's his best film. I think it's better than Nightmare on Elm Street. The mystery of that film is so interesting because the problem with a lot of whodunits is that they don't give you enough information to really come to a solid conclusion yourself. You know, it always feels like they're just holding back enough information to always keep you at bay. Mm -hmm. Whereas the Scream films don't really feel like they're doing that. They're giving you everything. Absolutely everything. You get all the details. I guess, spoilers for Scream. But the first, you know, with the whole Drew Barrymore dies right within the first 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. And then you find out later on, like almost immediately afterwards that she was do's ex mm -hmm. and that's there for you they just give that you true you know that's not something that you find out after the twist you know when they're like oh and why did you kill blah 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 and he's like well she was my ex and then you're like oh <laughs> shit you know they just say oh by the way and yep. i think what's so clever about scream is that they give every single person equally valid motive which is you know it's essential for a whodunit mm -hmm. absolutely essential glass onion did it fairly well recently in that one aspect so oh. everyone in scream you can you can pick and say well this is why you would have done it or this is why you would have done it you know and it makes sense from every angle so you it's perfectly within reason to guess it i love that and obviously they do the twist of who it is, but also there's the added twist of it's not just one person, it's mm -hmm. two. And I remember that first blowing my fucking mind. That was crazy to me. I was like, oh no, it's Billy. But Billy was my pick. All right, I was like, it's totally Billy. It has to be. 
So when it was Billy, I was like, I knew it. I knew it, right? And then she runs to Stu, and then it turns out it's Stu as well. And I had to pause the movie. I paused the movie, and I stood up from... Uh, I watched it at my dad's house, and I stood I up from my desk, it. and I... Yeah, it blew my mind, you know. I needed to take a breather. I was like, no way. <laughs> and then... But what's so great about it is, normally with a whodunit, once you figure out who done it, it's kind of like you're riding it to the end now. Like, you know, you're in the end game. You're just trying to get through it to the end. Scream isn't like that. The mystery gets solved, but the film is still just as fun afterwards. Yeah. Because obviously at that point then, Billy and Stu kind of transform into different characters because they've been playing pretty much an act the entire time. Especially yeah. Stu. Like Matthew Lillard as Stu is top five, one of my favorite horror characters ever because of that last like 10 minutes where he just absolutely loses his mind. And I, I, I love that. It's just as exciting once the mystery is over, which is a big rarity in whodunits. Yeah, it's hard to handle that. So yeah, I would just love to experience the, the guessing game once again, because then obviously I went on to watch all the screams. And, you know, you're constantly guessing, you know, who's who or yeah. if there's one killer or if there's two. Yeah, it's one yeah. of my favorite things to do. And it's especially great in the first film. Yep. Uh, also, also, again, one of those movies that was ahead of his time. You have the whole meta understanding of movies within the movie. And I don't oh, think that was oh, done yeah. a lot before that. But nowadays, that's like the... The cool thing to do, you know. Yeah, we we love a bit of meta these days, yeah. but to a point where where the new Scream even get criticized for it, where it's like, well, oh, they do it. <laughs> you know, it's Scream. Yeah, that's kind of <laughs> yeah, what we do here. Yeah. Do you know though? I always found this odd, right? So, scary movie, the Marlon, uh, not the Marlon Wayans, just the Wayans brothers films. Um, that first one is mostly a parody of Scream, isn't it? It's it's a parody of a lot of films, but it, like the the main through yeah. line is Scream. To the point where I, as a kid, I remember I, I said earlier like I haven't seen horror films as a kid. Yeah, I have seen Scary Movie with like twelve or something, and I so this was my first encounter of this story basically. And when I watched Scream for the first time, I was in shock how much I knew of the plot because I oh, had seen Scary, scary Movie scary before. Movie. And it's kind of bizarre that people thought it would be a good idea to parody the horror movie that is already a parody of the horror genre. Yeah, this was the point I was about to make. I've always found it so odd that they're parodying a parody. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know if... If the Wayne's brothers knew that, I don't. I, I don't know if they saw Scream and understood. They failed the the homework. But yeah, yeah it, it's it's super odd. It, it's a weird one, definitely. It's very strange. Scary Movie is a funny ass film, though. So fair enough, I guess. But yeah. <laughs> All right then. Your first own artistic expression regarding anything film related. Basically, the fir my first contact with anything to do with filmmaking was a very personal project for me that I'm now sharing to the entirety, <laughs> entirety of the internet. <laughs> but not the actual project, you know, just the existence of it. A couple of years ago, I went on a trip with uh, my friend's group and I recorded some 
some beats here and there, as I always do, because you know, if you put the camera on my on my hand, I I'm gonna use it. I'm gonna use it. And uh, since I'm a very, um, I try to be always in the present, you know, and at the same time, I try to record the present. It's a very you know weird duality to be in. I used that those moments that I recorded with my friends to compile a series of shots and I edited. Uh, it was my first time editing something of that scale and I made a short film about it. At the time I was sensing some type of climate um, of departure and I, I guess that video served as a, a way of saying goodbye. It was interesting. It was very emotional to to create. It was very emotional on my part to write it, uh, even edit it, even putting like a, a song, a special song that would resonate with most of them. And I'm very happy that it was well received. And uh, I still get some quotes of mine <laughs> being quoted back to me. So that's that's funny. So yeah, that's my first, I wouldn't say artfully, but more like, more towards filmmaking uh, experience that I had. Uh, Why? <laughs> what, we're supposed to follow that up, are we? <laughs> right, cool, yeah. <laughs> what is it? I guess mine is a really recent one when I made my first YouTube video in uh, 2021, um, which is, it was about two years ago, like exactly. It was a video on Tick Tick Boom because that had just came out and I adored it. And I had wanted to start a YouTube mm -hmm. channel for a while, so I did. And I ended up making two videos. One on Tick Tick Boom, one on Creep, which I mentioned earlier. And then I kind of quit doing YouTube. You know, I had crappy software and a crappy PC, so I didn't I, I didn't really uh, feel motivated to do it. So about a year later, I deleted both those videos and I rebooted my channel and I've started it again. And, you know, I do two videos a week, which is very stressful. And I made a, <laughs> a, a massive error in doing that schedule and I'm still doing it now. So that's fun. So it was making a YouTube video, which I have since deleted. But you made it work. <laughs> you made it work. Wait. <laughs> Okay. Why would you say it's crap? I think it's great that you uh, got the motivation and you know the courage to just go ahead Thank and do you. it. Thank you. Yeah, I think I think it's a great answer. I mean, like even considering you are the only one giving an answer that actually relates to the thing we're doing right now. <laughs> you are sure. you're in a, in some ways you are the most trained yeah. on talking about film. Uh, of all of us. And yet so. I have the Ooh. worst opinions. So that's fine. <laughs> no. There are no bad opinions, okay? No I mean, Benjamin Button, but you know. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> Alright, to, to bring this to a wholesome note, I guess, my first artistic expression regarding anything film, I am actually not sure. It could be either of two. They were both around when I was five or six years old. My best friend at the time had really early a phone that could film. So like really 
shitty, probably 144p Nokia phone camera. I remember we did some just sketches, weird stuff, super random. It, it, it's probably, you, you could consider it internet humor just without us knowing that it was. But super weird sketches. Uh, I remember they made his little do uh, sister laugh. So I guess we were successful. And the, yeah. the other one would be around the same time. I have still to this day no idea how I found out how stop motion was made at that age. I must have seen like some video thing on TV about an, some probably a nightmare before Christmas or something. Mm -hmm. uh, however, I knew how it was made and <laughs> I got my hands on the phone of my mother at some point, uh, which was also a shitty Nokia camera. And I remember sitting in the living room and creating shitty stop motion videos with my Playmobil characters at the time. I sadly don't have any of those videos anymore. No, I wish I had. I wanted to watch Damn, them I was literally just about to ask you <laughs> I wish if I you had. could uh, show us. Yeah. They wouldn't have been great because I didn't have any tripod. And as we know, moving a camera... <laughs> in between stills of a stop motion will result in a very jittery image. I, over time, advanced. I remember finding out a technique where I aligned a few books and I could, like, sit down the phone in the same spot, about the same yeah. spot roughly every time. <laughs> so I made improvements and they, they were not very good because I couldn't make actual stills and then play it, so I had to press record and pause real quick <laughs> every time. Yeah, but but I'm proud of it. I, I'm I'm proud of the idea that for some weird reason, six-year-old me decided it would be a good idea to not only play with my Playmobil but actually record stories about it. You made the original Playmobil movie. <laughs> what a pioneer! Honestly. I mean, I don't know if you've actually seen the Playmobil movie, but it sucks. So <laughs> yours is probably the best Playmobil movie ever made. Maybe, maybe that was mine. Someone just found the phone. What, they leaked it. And yeah, <laughs> they, they took full responsibility of what I created. <laughs> wow, they got like, was it Daniel Radcliffe that was in that movie? Jeez. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm the only person that watched the Playmobil movie. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I didn't even know that there was one. I thought you yeah, were making a joke he, on the yeah, Lego movie. <laughs> I heard about it, but... <laughs> it's got Anya Taylor-Joy and Daniel Radcliffe in it. Crazy. Jesus. Yeah. And it's really bad. <laughs> Whoa, it's, it's got 18% on Rotten Tomatoes. Damn. Yeah. That's an achievement. Jesus, man. I thought it was bad. I didn't think it was that bad. Anyway, yeah. No, you made you made the only good Playmobil movie. Hold on. Uh, maybe I did. I I don't remember the plot to be honest. <laughs> I mean, this one kind of had no plot, so you know, if it had one at all, you still a step up. <laughs> I remember mine had a giraffe in it, so oh, I got that yeah. going. Top tier. <laughs> more Which brings can, us. Can, wait there, can I just say more movies need giraffes? Okay, Playmobil <laughs> or not, giraffes yep. are underrepresented. I just recently rewatched the uh, uh, Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story, which has a giraffe in it. So, yeah, that's that. Mm. Why do you have so much love for giraffes? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. They're What's cool, that? isn't it? They got long necks. 
Long necks. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you want from me. They're just cool, bro. You know, big ass necks. Which brings us. <laughs> those big ass necks bring us to the most memorable theater experience. Crit, you want to go first? Oh, I get to go first. Yay. All right. Yeah. So, my most memorable theater experience was seeing Avengers Endgame opening night. If anybody knows me, they know that I don't watch the MCU anymore. I'm very much off that boat. However, growing up, you know, because when the first Iron Man came out, I was about eight years old. So I was I was in prime demographic to see these films. You know, I'd, I'd really loved the, um, the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man films. So the MCU was like, it was everything. I would go and see a lot of them with my dad and then eventually my friends. I went with a particular group of friends to go and see um, Avengers Infinity War. And it was one of the best theatre experiences up until that point. I thought it, it, it was just a fantastic experience. We really, really wanted the next part. And then, you know... You had to wait. Yeah. <laughs> and I, all, all those friends I didn't speak to for a while after that. I think it was, it was for about a year. You know, we did that and then I didn't speak to them for a while. And, you know, we didn't fall out or anything. We just didn't really speak. But Endgame was about to come out. It was the week before Endgame. And one of them messaged me and he was like, do you want to go and see Endgame? So-and-so-and-so was coming. I was like, absolutely. I went to his house the night before. Uh, no, two nights before, rather. I'm stupid. And we binged as many MCU films as we could. <laughs> Damn. Yeah, we had all the DVDs and we went through so many MCU films. And we spent the whole, you know, two nights just theorizing about what's going to happen in Endgame. And we... No wonder you got sick of it. <laughs> <laughs> I was, you know, I was really into the hype. And then we yeah. went opening night. It was electric. Every, every single moment in that film, there was a reaction. You know, there was a lot of tears and there was a lot of cheering. And you don't really see that in the cinema, especially not in the UK. You know, we have like etiquette, you know, you don't really, even in a comedy, don't laugh too loud. We tried to be very respectful of each other. But in that cinema, nobody cared. If they were crying, they were sobbing. You know, if they, they were cheering, they were really going for it. And it was incredible. Endgame felt like the perfect summation of my entire childhood. Because I had been seeing these films since I was like eight years old. Yeah. And by the time Endgame came out, I was an adult. I was 18. So it was like a decade of my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it just wrapped up incredibly well. Because it's a good film. It is. It's not Citizen Kane. <laughs> but, for, but for what it's trying to be... It's absolutely perfect, Alex. Yeah. I couldn't have thought of a better way to wrap it up. Yeah, that's me with Harry Potter uh, at the time. Uh, it was, you know, just the build-up of my entire childhood. And when I watched the last one on the cinema, I just got home and I cried and cried and cried because it was over. Yeah, I did that too. <laughs> <laughs> I can definitely relate to that to a certain degree. When the first Iron Man came out, I was still very much a boy. And very hyped for this iron-suited man just flying around and doing cool shit. 
uh, that I was here for that. It was awesome. I grew out of it at a certain point, so I wasn't really part of this whole thing anymore when Infinity War and Endgame came around. But I, since then, uh, got to it, and I definitely understand why it has that praise. It's it's an incredible feat to bring such a conclusion to what was it at the time 20 movies or something yeah uh, with with that many characters and bring them together and make still a cohesive story i think endgame has a few issues pulling it off uh compared to infinity war i think yeah it was yeah. the better one but I do they are definitely great for that i was wondering just real quick because you said uh in the uk the people are generally very composed in the theater do you yeah. often go to like premieres or maybe film festivals or any of that kind no i don't actually i try to avoid it okay interesting because in austria i have the feeling that for the most part people also don't really react in the cinema a lot but if you go to a premiere if you go to a film festival to any like special screening and it's somewhat filled uh, like the crowd is somewhat filled then you definitely get those crowd reactions yeah i get yeah no i i try to avoid anything that might have a lot of people in yeah same it, generally i don't i don't love crowds but endgame is one of those exceptions where i felt like i needed to see it opening night because i just couldn't risk having that movie spoiled for me you know, I needed to to be in that room when everyone else experienced it for the first time. Ah, right. Cool. Spoilers. I remembered. <laughs> this is the film I wanted to talk about spoilers for. I I have never seen the internet come together in a way that they did for Endgame. For spoiler protection? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was interesting. I saw so many spoilers for Infinity War for No Way Home, for a million movies. I gen... Because even though I saw it opening nice, the spoilers wouldn't have bothered me. I didn't see any spoilers for Endgame for at least two to three weeks. Yeah, I remember that. The internet was was all very uniform, mm -hmm. which is really special. Yeah, I remember definitely uh, browsing through Reddit at the time, and there were like weeks... <laughs> of just memes about the non-existent of infinite uh, of endgame memes yeah uh, the, the subreddits were all unanim unanimously agreeing and everyone was just working together to get rid of any spoilers about endgame it, it was fascinating yeah i remember those now that you that you talk about it yeah it's, it's, yeah that's really weird it was it was really weird mm -hmm. anyway yeah uh you guys wanna yours yeah so for me i actually now that you were speaking about avengers endgame and talking about the crowd i thought of <laughs> i thought of one movie <laughs> that i went to the cinema and it was a pleasant experience to watch with a crowd uh, and normally i don't like crowds because people laugh uh, when i don't find things funny <laughs> And <laughs> it's just there's like a it, we're not in sync, okay? I'm not in sync <laughs> with the crowd, so it it just brings my experience a little bit down. But um, there was this one movie 
called Twilight Part 2, okay? <laughs> uh, it has a different name. Um, it's the last Twilight movie. Breaking Dawn Part 2. Yeah. Yeah, it's like that moment. Have you guys watched it? The oh, absolutely. Movie? I love those films. Sometime, yeah. I don't even remember what, what you want to spoil. <laughs> Maybe you do. There's like one moment where everyone just goes, Ah! <laughs> they scream at the little girls. They're like, I can't believe this. they've done this to this character. Is it relating to something Jacob does somewhat unwillingly? No. No, I know what you're talking about. I know okay. what you're talking about. That's that's what I had to think it's with, about. Um, it has to do with Carlisle. Yeah, Carlisle, Carlisle the it, yeah. the father to Edward. Yeah, I thought mm -hmm. so. I thought so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So everyone is raging. Like I can't believe it. I see people crying, reaching for <laughs> tissues, and I'm there. Like I'm there with them because I couldn't believe it as well. I guess. And um, I was laughing so hard when that happened. <laughs> I didn't see anyone laughing. But... <laughs> it would just be me at the back. <laughs> yeah, but the, my first answer was Avatar, uh, the first one. I watched it on uh, 3D, again, with my father. My father took me. Uh, it was just amazing. I remember dodging a bomb, okay? <laughs> it was a new experience. It was... Um, cinema was revitalized. It showed me... It showed me that cinema is a special very special medium and that can can transport you to a completely different world watching it in 3d was very very special real quick on that did you see the most recent avatar in cinema yeah yeah <laughs> you said it's so enthusiastic yeah yeah <laughs> Jeez, also, okay i won't bring it up again I didn't mean it. It just came off that way, okay? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't mean it, I swear. I liked the movie a lot. Um, it was beautiful. I don't know what James Cameron like puts in his tea to just come up with these ideas to, you know, let me gather this special effects um, team and just do this beautiful, unprecedented movie. It's amazing. I watched it in uh, IMAX uh, 3D. Good. Me too. Yeah. Me too. You did well. <laughs> one thing before I get to my answer. I think it's interesting. I am apparently the only one here who likes big crowds with movies. I, It might just be that I found the right kind of crowd for me. So like I usually mm -hmm. frequent the same few cinemas. They are all in original sound. So no dubbing, uh, which is like a big thing in, in German speaking nations. Because the German dubbing industry is, as far as I know, the biggest in the world. So we get basically everything in dub and people are used to it to the degree where most people won't ever watch something if it isn't dubbed. That leads to those few cinemas, that few screenings uh, with like the original sound and subtitles, basically just being filled with um, people who are really into film. I might have just found my perfect niche to to surround myself in because I generally vibe with like the reactions of the crowds that I'm in. No, I'm just disgustingly antisocial. <laughs> I get teenagers like I <laughs> they came they come off school and they decide I'm going to the cinema 
Oh, um, I always go to the cinema at like 1 p.m. Yeah, now, I, now I'm doing that, but before it was insufferable. They talk during the movie, they're with their phones, uh, eating so loudly and... Yeah, you wouldn't you wouldn't find any of those in like the screenings I go to. I guess that's that's just like a filter for that. <laughs> it depends on the crowd and it depends on the movie. For example, I watched Avengers Endgame also in the theater and uh it was a very um nice experience. Which brings us to my answer, which is also a movie that a certain kind of people were very excited about that it's finally coming out. I uh, gave the answer of the Austria premiere for Everything Everywhere All at Once. Uh, for a bit of context, the movie has at that point already been out in the US probably since at least half a year. Austria was even slow within Europe. I was actually one of the few lucky people in the crowd of the Austria premiere who has seen it already. I made a road trip through Germany maybe three weeks earlier or something like that, which lined up perfectly with the German release. So I had already seen it and was so looking forward to like dragging along all my friends into the cinema. And yeah, this was this was bonkers. This was like with 250 people all super film nerds who already knew this was supposed to be this big new thing everyone was aware of like the ratings it got from other countries the hype yeah. it had worldwide everyone was so excited to finally be there finally sit there and i don't think i ever had a screening with that many crowd reactions and i was fully on board i was there from minute one till the end but it's it was a really neat festival crowd where it's also like in the slower moments, in the calmer moments. It was silent. There was no popcorn <laughs> scrambling yeah. or anything. It was, everyone was fully in it and you could really feel it. And the vibe just elevated the whole experience to another level. I think that uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once is again uh, being screened in Portugal, I think. I'm not sure. Um, I would love to watch it in the cinema. I think it's one of my biggest regrets in life <laughs> that I didn't watch it in the cinema because that movie, it's just... I want to make a party in the theater. In fact, I want to bring all the friends that I can to for them to watch it because it's just amazing. Are we invited or...? Hell no. Nah. <laughs> oh, makes sense, makes sense. I wouldn't invite me either. Since we're wrapping up the questions now, it's time for us to announce the three movies in question to discuss in the next episode. So if you want to prepare, watch the following. Our new current movie is Babylon, the fourth feature film by the American writer-director Damien Chazelle. It is his biggest budget production so far and an epic scale look behind the curtains of Hollywood at the end of the silent film era, starring Diego Calva, Brad Pitt and Margot Robbie. We'll also be talking about Singing in the Rain, since it's a notable influence of Babylon, directed by Gene Kelly and Stanley Donan, a musical that is also about the transition from the silent era to the talking picture era, starring Debbie Reynolds, Donald O'Connor and, of course, Gene Kelly.
we are also going to talk about La La Land, a movie that came out in 2016. It was directed by Damien Chazelle, his follow-up to the successful Whiplash, and it follows the story of two people who find love in a city where you go to follow your dreams, Los Angeles, the great Hollywood that would be the subject of his most recent one. If you don't want to get spoiled for these movies, you have two weeks to prepare before the next episode comes out. We are George, Crit, Beer, and you are listening to 3 Euros Per Movie. <laughs>